0: Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to the book of Ruth, Uh, if you don't know where that's at, after the first five books, Uh, then comes Joshua and Judges, as we looked at this morning, Uh, and then this little book of Ruth, and there's a little outline for you as well, and some notes for our kids, uh, if you want to follow along. Uh, How many of you have studied your family name, or uh, your family tree uh, if, you, if you've done that, maybe you're, or maybe you want to do that, you know uh, that every little detail of your past is precious. Uh, and as we turn our minds and our hearts backwards to the Old Testament, we're reading the family tree of the Savior. Amen? So every little detail here. Now, Ruth, may, uh, it, it's short, and it may not be... Uh, one of the one of the most significant books in the Bible, but it's still, and it should be, precious to us because it tells a little tale and gives us some names and some little branches on that little family tree uh, of our Savior. And so why is it so precious to us, this little book of Ruth? Well, it demonstrates to us the hand of God in orchestrating human history and one family in particular in this perilous period of the Judges, all to prepare the way for Israel's Savior. So it demonstrates the hand of God in orchestrating human history, uh, and one family in particular, in the perilous peer of the judges, to prepare the way for Israel's Savior. So in chapter 1, if we turn our Bibles there to Ruth, in chapter 1, we're introduced to two of the main characters, Naomi and Ruth. And oftentimes, reading the Old Testament especially, uh, in these stories, one word sticks out, uh, and that one word is often very important and key for interpreting and understanding uh, the chapter. And in this chapter, Ruth 1, and really the whole book of Ruth, uh, that word is the Hebrew word shuv, which is return, shuv, uh, return. It's used 12 times just in this one chapter, the language of turn uh, or return, and you'll see that as you can mark it up Uh, As you're going through, I won't point them all out, but you can see that if you read chapter one, this little word, shuv, or return. So in chapter one, there's this famine, and it shows us and it points us to a very sorrowful condition. Uh, There was national sorrow in the days when the judges ruled. You see that there, uh, the very opening of this little book. In the days when the judges ruled. And just previous to that, of course, as you know, as we saw this morning, is the last verse of of Judges 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her, uh, their own eyes. And so in the days of the Judges' rule, there was national sorrow. Uh, There was a sorrowful condition. They did what was right in their own eyes, not in the Lord's. And what have we seen so far in our survey of the Old Testament? Uh, What have we seen so far in terms of the Lord saying to Israel, what would happen to them if they were disobedient? One of the curses of the covenants, Deuteronomy 28, for example, I encourage you to go read that whole chapter and find this. What does it say about famine? Was it just random chance? Was it a happenstance? Did it just happen because of meteorological forces or climate change? No, this is a hand of God in that context. So they were disobedient and there was famine in the land. Again, verse 1. But there's also familial sorrow. So it starts like like a lot of times, the stories begin in a big kind of general sweep, but then it narrows in and focuses in. So the whole land was under famine, but there's this one family in particular that we want to focus our hearts and minds on with this familial sorrow. A man of Bethlehem in Judah and his wife and his two sons, they left the promised land don't forget, the promised land was the image of the land that flowed with milk and honey. And they left their particular town, Bethlehem, Beit which is the house of bread. They left this land that flowed with milk and honey, and their town was called the house of bread. It was the place that God provided. And they went to sojourn, verse 1 tells us, where? Moab. 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 So, all right, from the first verse, something is going on here. Moab was the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter, way back when in Genesis chapter number 19. Uh, this was the nation that King Balak ruled when the Israelites came out of Egypt. The story in the end of the book of Numbers, Balak hired a prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel as they traversed from, uh, from Egypt all the way to the promised land. That's the land of Moab. King Balak. Uh, this is where a seductive, uh, a very, uh, many seductive women uh, came from, and they ensnared Israel's men into ungodly relationships at Baal or Baal Peor in Numbers chapter twenty-five. And if you're reading your Bible chronologically, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the last time Moab appeared was in Judges chapter three, and they were oppressing the Israelites. You don't want to go to Moab, kids. <laughs> You don't want to go to Moab if you're an Israelite. That's the point. They, they left the promised land, the city called the House of Bread, for Moab. Bad news, right? Bad news. Now, this man's name is Elimelech. His name means my God is king. Elimelech, my God is king. He died, though, verse 3. It's so not only that the man whose name was my God is king leave the promised land. He had two surviving sons, verse 2 tells us, who took Moabite wives. What's wrong with that? But they had to get married. You know, these, you know our, my kid can't live at home forever. He's got to get married or she's got to be married, right? <laughs> these are foreign wives and the law had forbidden that. And notice they took wives. This is the normal word that's used in the Old Testament for, for taking a wife in marriage. Uh, this is the word that highlights the sinfulness of this marriage. And so this this familial sorrow leads to Naomi's confession. Don't call me Naomi, which is Hebrew for pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Just like the waters of Mara in Exodus chapter 15. Why? Why does she feel the sorrow? The Lord Almighty, verse 21 and 22, uh, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So that's why she says, call me Mara, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. I had a husband and two sons. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me, verse 22, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. What a sorrowful condition. That's how the story begins, sorrow. But where there's sorrow with us, there's always hope with God, you see. There's always hope with God, you see. Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. There's the first word, the first use of the word shuv, return. They returned uh, with Naomi to the country, from the country of Moab. Why? She heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them bread. She hears good news. But just like the crowds in Jesus' day, they were attracted to the food. So she hears there's finally some food back in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and so she's going to go there. She sets out with her two daughters in law, verse 7, to return, there's that word again, to return to the land. And as Naomi and her two daughters in law, Orpah and Ruth, they're all widows by now. Elimelech's dead, Malon and Killian are dead. Three widows, they are all returning and traveling back to the promised land. Uh, and she says and she turns to her two daughters in law on the way there some, at some point, go return, there's that word again, return, each of you to her mother's house. But the daughters-in-law refused. No, verse 10. We will return, there's that word again, with you to your people. But Naomi, Naomi insists, turn back. There's that word. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Right. I, I'm bitter now. The Lord has made me bitter. I, I'm, there's nothing good going on in my life. Go back to your family. Notice the merely horizontal focus, though, on houses and husbands. Turn back. Verse 12. My daughters, go your way. Verse 13. No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi recognizes the Lord, notice that, but only as one who's against her. Just sorrow. Sorrow and bitterness here. Now, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. That implies what? They're they're traveling from Moab to Bethlehem, and she's been saying, go, go, go. They're saying, no, no, no. Finally, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. What do you think that implies? Goodbye. She's going, she's fine. I'm going to go. I'm going to go back to my mom, to my mother's house. But, verse 14, notice this. But, this is the surprising conversion here. But Ruth clung to Naomi. That's the surprise here. She clung here to Naomi. This is the very same word, the very same verb that's used all the way back in Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and what? Cling to his wife. Cling to his wife. I always found it interesting. The Bible tells us that Adam left his father and mother to cling to his wife. In our society, it's always, you know, the man gets his due, right? The woman has to leave and she's got she's to cling to him. But in fact, in the beginning, it was he was clinging uh, to his wife. So, It's the same word here. It's it's used in many contexts, in many places. It's used, in fact, in Deuteronomy to describe Israel, the people of God. They were to cling to the Lord in that covenant relationship of love. But all the way up to this point in the story so far, all Ruth has seen of the Lord is his harsh, frowning providence. But something's going on here. Something's going on here. Return, go back, go back. But there's something going on here. There's something divine happening. Naomi's dumbfounded, and she urges Ruth again, verse 15, to leave. Right? She's like breaking all the rules in the personal evangelism handbook here. You know, don't come with me. I know, the Lord's only, you know, uh, this cosmic bad guy who's doing bad stuff to us. Go back, go. But God's at work here, God's doing something. And the first time Ruth speaks, we read her say in verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return, there's that word again, from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Why is she she going to go with Naomi? Look at verse 16 and 17. Your people shall be my people. And what else? Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. She's saying what? She's saying that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, that I belong to the Lord. She's been converted. She follows not just Naomi, not just to get some food, but she's following the Lord now. Notice that. Your God is my God. This is, uh, this is Ruth personalizing What God says all throughout the Old Testament that she probably heard at some point or another uh, in this family, where God says over and over and over again, Leviticus 26 as an example, I, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what's called the covenant formula in the Old Testament. And here it's Ruth saying this. Notice that. The Israelite in the story, Naomi, She's returning, but she's merely going back to her homeland for some bread. And it's the Moabitess. You don't want to go to Moab, kids. It's the Moabitess, the Gentile, the outsider. The one whom Paul would later on describe, describing Gentiles, saying, who was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. A stranger to the covenants of promise. The one who had no hope without God in the world. It's she who turns to the Lord. Notice a very surprising conversion. And so it takes a Gentile turning to the Lord to get the Lord, we might say, to return to his own people and to us. And so uh, the story, chapter one, ends with just reveling in the grace and the mercy of God, that he loves to save outcasts. He's always doing something surprising in who he saves. That's what Paul says in In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, it's not the mighty, not the rich, not the strong that God has saved, and not many noble among you, but God saves the weak and the powerless and so forth. God saves sinners. But how is God going to be faithful to this disobedient people? Again, notice in chapter 1, verse 8, Naomi prayed, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord deal kindly with you. With you. And again, we're going to see that word pop up here multiple times. Kindly. Chesed is the Hebrew term. Uh, it's the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. So, the Lord's been faithful. May he be faithful, kind uh, to you. She, she's praying that, that uh, Naomi's praying that, that Ruth would experience the kindness, the covenant faithfulness, the mercies of God. But she doesn't realize that when Ruth does experience this kindness of God, It's not just going to affect Ruth in her little personal prayer closet. It's not just going to affect Naomi, but Israel and the whole world, we're going to see, the whole world is going to experience this kindness and faithfulness of God. And so chapter 2 demonstrates the answer of God to Naomi's prayer. And the scene, the next scene begins in verse 1, telling us that Naomi had a relative of her husband's Uh, Elimelech, her husband, a worthy man, notice that, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. So he's the third main character in the story. And in Boaz, the Lord shows his faithfulness. How? Well, he provides for Naomi and Ruth's stomachs. I think I put it in the outline there, right? He provides for their stomachs, we might say. Just he provides for them in tangible ways. Ruth the Moabite, notice verse 2, the text is always em- emphasizing that. She's a Moabite, a Moabitess, right? She's a Gentile. She's an, she's an outcast. She's a stranger. So Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Notice there's that word again, favor. That, that language of, of the faithfulness, the mercies of God. The Lord provides for Naomi and Ruth. How? In the law of God, there was a little provision that said to all those people who owned fields that when you would, 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 would plant your field and cultivate your field and eventually harvest your field, you had to do something with the edges of it. What was that? You had to leave like all the edges uncultivated or, or unharvested, right? Leave the, leave the wheat or you know, whatever you were growing. You had to leave the edges there for... The poor, the widow, the stranger, the passerby, right? So the Lord's going to provide through Boaz, following the law, uh, for their tangible needs. But something extraordinary happens in verse 3. Notice this. And we read, we read over these kinds of verses in our Bibles a lot in the Old Testament. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Right? So the, the story, this scene begins by saying uh, that, that we have this relative. His name is Boaz. He's a worthy man. And so Ruth says, well, let me just go to his field and I'll, I'll hang out on the edges and just grab a little of this, grab a little of that, and you know, we'll, we'll knead it up. We'll, we'll, make some, we'll make some bread. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Lots of fields out there. But she just happened to come to this one. Right? She just happened. It's random, right? It's chance. Just happened. <laughs> this is an Old Testament way of describing uh, the secret, surprising providence of God over and over and over again. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson describes this as uh, the divine autograph. All throughout the Bible, uh, the characters themselves don't know what's going on, but the narrator, the narrator, sort of looking down or looking back, the narrator knows what's going on. and this, He calls this the, uh, the divine autograph. In Scripture, Sinclair Ferguson says, God writes in block, capital letters, the principles of his providence so that when he rewrites them in our own lives in small, sometimes microscopic writing, we see that he is the same God. She just happened to come across this field that was owned by this man who was a relative of uh, her, uh, her matron, her, 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 her mother-in-law's husband, Elimelech. She just happened to come. And so enter Boaz, right? Enter Boaz here. Verse 4. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Now, verse 1, again, he's a worthy man. And we see his worthiness, his godliness. That's what worthiness means here. He's a godly man. We see it in action there where he speaks to all those who work in his fields. The Lord be with you. And they all answer, and the Lord bless you. Right? He's no absentee landlord. He loves even the lowest worker out in his field. And oftentimes in the Bible, again, another principle that we interpret is the first words that someone says oftentimes are significant about their character. And so we see that here. Uh, the first words out of Boaz's mouth, at least in recorded for us, are, The Lord be with you. Right? He's, a, he's a faithful, godly man. Now, he notices something out of the ordinary going on. There is this young, scholars think she's probably in her 20s, this young woman who's out there on the edge of her field. Whose young woman is this, he asks. And a, and a worker responds, well, she's the young Moabite. Again, notice that, she's a Moabite. Who came back with Naomi. And so Boaz is going to care for her. He tells her, uh, verse number 8, uh, don't glean in another field. or Don't leave this one. Stick close to my young women, verse 8. Uh, that language of sticking close, that's the clinging language again. That's the same, the same verb there, uh, t- to cling. Uh, she's going to be safe in this field, verse number 9. I've charged my young men not to touch you. Uh, she's going to be cared, verse number 9, when she's thirsty because it's hot in the fields during the day. Uh, the vessels of drinking water are for her as well. And ask the young man to draw you some water out of a well. And so she, she bows to, to the ground. She bows her head and her face to the ground. Uh, in, in utter uh, response, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? There's that word favor again. Right? That language of the faithfulness, the mercies of God in action here. She recognizes the astonishing providence of God through Boaz. And he answers her that he was showing her faithfulness because she showed faithfulness to Naomi. Verses 11 and 12. May the Lord repay you, he says, what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then notice what verse 12 says. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She wasn't just clinging to Naomi, you see. She's coming under the wings of the Almighty. And so Boaz extends this kindness to Ruth beyond his field and he invites her to his own table, verse 14, and she eats and she, until she was satisfied and she even had some left over to take to Naomi's. Big deal, right? Big deal. It is a big deal. Why is it a big deal? It's one thing to have an edge of a field way out there where a Gentile can go grab a little, a little snack or a meal, but... What's going on here? That's so scandalous. A Jew is doing what with the Gentile? Inviting a Gentile in and eating at his own table. Do you see the shadow here that Jesus of Boaz? Of Jesus here that is being cast off of Boaz? The Jewish Jesus eating with outsiders, Mark 2 and he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. We see that in Boaz here. We see that, uh, that wonderful example even is being set for us to be welcoming and, uh, and, and to bring in and take in the stranger, the sojourner, the, the needy, the weak, the poor, the destitute, to bring them in to welcome them. And Boaz's kindness reaches its pinnacle after the meal and he instructs his young men Let her glean, even among the sheaves, not just the edge, not just sort of the dregs and whatever's left over. No, even among the sheaves, the best part of the wheat. And even pull some bundles out for her and leave them out to glean. So they're going to do all the work. They're going to bundle the wheat up. They're just going to leave it there for her in a nice little bow, a nice little package. So she goes back and she beats out what she had gleaned, verse 17 says, and there was an ephah of barley. That's roughly 30 pounds of grain which would have lasted between 2 to 3 weeks for two women 2 to 3 weeks of food just like that right just like that Boaz makes no money off of it he gets nothing out of the deal he simply does it out of kindness because he's a shadow of the lord's very own grace now don't forget what naomi said in chapter 1 i went away full i left bethlehem and i went away full husband a uh, husband and two sons i went away full but the Lord's brought me back empty. It's actually the other way around, isn't it? The Lord's reversed that. How faithful is God here? She whose uh, cupboards were bare now saw them become full through the providence of the gracious Lord himself using Boaz. And so he provides for them in their stomachs, we might say. He also provides for Ruth and Israel's soul we see, most importantly, he, tells, uh, he says of Ruth again that she came under the God of Israel's wings. The God of Israel's wings. So, Deuteronomy 32, uh, I'll just point this out. Deuteronomy 32, uh, verse, verses 10 through 12, roughly, say this. He found him in a desert land. The Lord found Israel in a desert land. Like a bird caring for its young. The Lord is like a bird caring for its young. Uh, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. It, the Lord encircled Israel. He cared for Israel. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. You've come to the Lord for, under his wings for refuge. Just like the Lord found Israel out in a howling waste wilderness, the Lord is now taking care of you Ruth, a Gentile, a stranger, an outcast. And so she tells Naomi that she worked in the field of Boaz, verse number 19, and Naomi is in utter astonishment. You know, she just mentioned it at the beginning. We have this guy in our family, this, this relative uh, of, of Elimelech, and, and Ruth's going to go and sort of try to find it, and she finds herself just by happenstance in that field. And then when she tells Naomi, bringing back this 30 pounds of grain, I was in his field today, and Naomi's in utter astonishment. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, there's that word again, has not forsaken the living of the dead. The man is one of our redeemers. Verse number 20, one of our redeemers. This word, Goel, redeemer, sometimes translated as a kinsman, uh, a Goel was uh, obligated to marry his dead brother's widow in the Old Testament. Why? to produce children in the name of his dead barren brother. That's Deuteronomy chapter 25. The problem is this. So he is a redeemer in the family, right? He's a kinsman in this family of uh, of, uh, uh, Elimelech. But is Boaz described as Elimelech's brother in the story? He's not. He's just called called a relative. The law said the brother of a, of a man who dies was to take the widow and produce children. But Boaz is never called Elimelech's brother. He's just, again, generically called a man, verse number one of the, of the, of the clan. And is Ruth Elimelech's widow? Who's, who's the widow of Elimelech? Naomi. Naomi. Problem number two. So Boaz isn't a brother of Elimelech. Ruth isn't the widow, Naomi is. And Ruth's a Gentile. The law says nothing, it makes no provisions for a kinsman, a goel, uh, a redeemer, to do anything for an outsider in this situation. But Boaz's worthiness is being demonstrated. He doesn't just fulfill the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law here. He loves the destitute. He loves his helpless neighbor as himself. And in Boaz, again, we see the Lord himself showing kindness and faithfulness, the very same God who sent his son for us, the destitute, the helpless, the outsider. Chapter three then describes him, this redeemer. And what do we see? What do we see about this promise of a redeemer, a goel, a kinsman? What do we see? Well, the story opens up, so we have the scene set, but now we have the ways of Naomi, Uh, And she says, well, he's going to be winnowing his barley tonight at the threshing floor. And so Naomi seizes the opportunity to take matters into her own hands. She says there, verse number one, should I not seek rest for you? And she devises a plan. Wash and anoint yourself. What does that mean? Ruth's been working her butt off all day. Wash and anoint yourself. Why would you do that? It's like, you know, get gussied up, right? (laughs) Right? Like, get clean, you know? Look presentable. Why? Put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor. Don't, but don't make yourself known to him until he's finished eating and drinking. So, you know, make sure he's in a vulnerable spot, right? And he's satisfied with food and drink and so forth. So make yourself presentable. Now, there's a lot of double entendre in this, in this little section here. That, that's a word, words are used and, and they can go two different ways. They can mean kind of an obvious, kind of simple thing, but they also mean something a little more innuendo, right? It's sort of the PG thirteen uh, part of the story. Take uh, uh, you are to, uh, to to put on your cloak. Uh, we read here uh, a, a cloak. Uh, it's used of a poor person's garment. This this word is used for a poor person's garment. Uh, it's also used of fragrant robes in the Song of Solomon. So, what does it mean here? Is it just a just sort of like a burlap sack? You know, she put on a burqa, uh, or is she, is she like? You know, dressing up for the, for the, for the moment. It's probably that. Uh, Naomi tells Ruth to, do, uh, to, to go to the threshing floor uh, where Boaz would be harvesting grain uh, at night. Why at night? Well, it was colder at night, right? It was, you worked all day and you'd thresh it out at night when it was cooler and a little easier. Uh, and threshing floors were typically outside the city gate, uh, And so because they're outside the city gate, sort of you know, out of sight, out of mind, they become associated with immorality. In Hosea 9, verse 1, we're told that this is where the prostitutes work, outside the city gate at the threshing floors. In other words, what happens at the threshing floor stays at the threshing floor, right? That's that's the innuendo here. That's why Naomi tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor, all dressed up, washed up, and anointed. And she tells her to, to wait until his guard is down. When he lies down, go uncover his feet and lie down. Now, uncover... Uncover usually means, in the Old Testament, to pull your pants down and expose your genitals. That's what it usually means. Leviticus 18 is a a command not to do this with your very own relative. So that's what it means. That's what it usually is associated with. Uh, In Ezekiel, the Lord threatened Israel with uncovering its nakedness in front of its ungodly lovers in shame, right? Speaking of their worshiping false gods. It was a way of showing their shame by exposing them, we might say. Uh, So go uncover his feet, and his feet also has this sort of double meaning. It can be a euphemism here. A nice way of saying, at times, uh, like Saul in a cave. When Saul was in the cave and he uncovered his feet, what was he doing? He's going to the bathroom, right? It's a nice way of putting that, uh, of relieving oneself. But it's also used of committing adultery in Ezekiel 16. So Naomi has a plan here, right? It's not the best plan, but she has got a plan. Uh, And she says, go, uh, uh, when he lies down, go and cover his feet and lie down. Lie down, that that phrase, lie down, is normally immorality. Genesis 19, it's normally immorality. So there's innuendo and there's uneasiness in Naomi's ways. What a great mother-in-law, huh? (laughs) What a great mother-in-law here, Um, and I just might say, as a practical point, you know, one of the practical things we can we can learn from that is uh, that we are not to be to try to be wiser than God, uh, but we are to wait for His leading and His timing in our lives. And in particular, when it comes to marriage, uh, uh, one writer said, I don't know who wrote it, and I've just seen it a million times, uh, that uh, that uh, uh, we are to be as a, as a single man or a woman, if we desire to be married that we are to be so in Christ that a man or woman has to seek Christ to find you, right? Uh, and so, you know, if, if uh, we know or if you are a, a godly man or a godly woman looking for a godly spouse, don't resort to worldly means. Don't resort to worldly means because it's only going to end up in, in, in ungodliness. Seek the Lord and while you're seeking the Lord, someone else out there is seeking the Lord and eventually the Lord in his own time and his own plan is going to work it out. Now, that's her plan. Thankfully, we see the worthiness of Boaz and the godliness of Ruth. That, this is, the, again, the irony. Naomi's a Jew. Ruth's a Gentile. The Jew says to the, the, the immorality, and the, it's the Gentile who doesn't. Verse 11 of our chapter calls her a godly woman. So despite the tempting plan, nonetheless, the Lord uses it. In the middle of the night, Boaz was startled and turned over, uh, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. You know, awkward, right? Awkward. But she's not asking for immorality. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. The Lord has done, uh, you've done this, Boaz says to Naomi, you've done this with the Lord to to come under his wings. And now she says, put your wings uh, over me. Uh, And to spread a robe or a cloak over a woman in the Old Testament uh, was used of marriage. So, you know, she's the one who asked for the ring." in this case, right? Not him. So uh, the Lord uses this. Now, he prays that she's going to be blessed uh, and uh, because she's a worthy woman. Verse number 11. Now, this is what's really cool. So notice verse 11 again. You are a worthy woman. You are a worthy woman. She's a young woman. She's not gone after other young men. She's waited for a godly man, uh, a worthy man as a worthy woman. What's cool is this. So in our Bible, we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Right? That's our order, of the Old Testament. Uh, do you know the, the order of the Old Testament and uh, where Ruth shows up in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible? Probably not. Probably not. It's fine. The book that comes right before Ruth is Proverbs. Right before Ruth in the Old Testament of the Hebrew Old Testament is Proverbs. Then comes Ruth. What's the last chapter of Proverbs again? The virtuous woman, right? The, uh, the, God, uh, the Proverbs 31 woman. that. Uh, that, uh, that we talk about. What is the last verse of Proverbs 31 say? Proverbs 31, 31 says this, Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. What's amazing is that Boaz doesn't know this because these books aren't written, uh, but the ancient Jews ordered the Bible in a certain way because they saw Ruth as the exemplar of the worthy woman of Proverbs 31. She's the example. So you want to know what Proverbs 31 is talking about? It's Ruth, right? According to the ancient rabbis. So there, there she is, this worthy, worthy woman. And so Boaz is confessing here in verse 11 that uh, she's the woman that's so in the Lord that he had to find the Lord to find her. So we cue Mendelssohn's wedding march, right? You throw the rice, bring the horse and carriage up, right? Not so fast, not so fast. It is true, verse 12 says, that I'm a redeemer, but there is someone nearer than I. So there's another problem, right? He's not Elimelech's brother. Ruth isn't the widow. Naomi is. And now, by the way, there's someone else even closer in the, in the line, the genealogy, than he is. And so chapter 3 ends uh, sort of on that cliffhanger. But what's the story all about, chapter 4, uh, uh, to bring it to a conclusion? Yes, it's about finding a husband. Yes, about finding provision. Yes, about finding protection. But that's not all. But that's not all. The episode begins, chapter four, with Boaz at the gate. That's where business and legal matters took place. And behold, again at the right time, the right moment, et cetera, et cetera. The Redeemer came by, verse one. This, this man, notice he's never named. He's never named. Uh, you know, he's just sort of you know Mister So and So, uh, as far as as far as we know. And so Boaz says, in effect, Hey, you, you know, sit down over here. And so he brings uh, elder ten men of the elders, and he tells them to sit down too, and then he tells this anonymous redeemer that Naomi is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So Boaz introduces this great deal in terms of being a deal for land, uh, but he's being very wise in the way he presents it. And then he says, if you will redeem that land, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So Mr. So-and-so says in verse 4, I'm going to redeem it, right? I mean, who doesn't want a good land deal? But now comes the sales pitch. The sales pitch. Right now comes the sales pitch. Okay, the day that you redeem that land from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite's, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That's the fine print, right? That's the terms and conditions that we all click. We have no idea what it says. We click our lives away, right? You click our lives away. We have no idea what it said. We just did it. That's the fine print. Oh, by the way, you're going to get this Gentile widow. Uh, you've got to take her along with you as well. And so he's like, ah, oh, i got cold feet. Right? Verse 6, I, I, I can't redeem it for myself. You know, take my right of redemption yourself. And just this beautiful picture that you know, he's only in it for what he can get out of it. Right? It's a picture of love here. It's, there is love here. Boaz loves her. And so, but this other redeemer just wants the land. He just wants to get what he can get out of it. Right? Boaz has true love. He's in it for the love. And so he marries what our culture would call damaged goods, right? This this widow, this outcast, and so forth. But he loves this one that is deemed unlovable by this real redeemer, this true redeemer. Uh, But he does love her, and he redeems her, and uh, he does what God does. He brings in outcasts and strangers and brings them into his covenant and into his Family And so the crowd then offers us prayer, verses 11 and 12. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, right? This is a Gentile being described as the the matriarchs of the people of God. Uh, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So then comes the child, uh, and notice the Lord's direct action in that. Verse 13, the Lord gave her conception, and then he's born. And these women say, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be your restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. So again, go back to chapter 1, verse 21. I, the Lord sent me out full and I've come back empty. No, it's the other way around. She's returned and been blessed with more than she could ever imagine. Notice, the women of the city recognized that in Ruth's love for Naomi, that she found a value greater than seven sons. Notice that. In this young woman, who was a Gentile, an outsider, a stranger, and all that that stuff, in this young woman, Naomi found more value than seven sons. Now, that is a statement itself, right? In a culture that overvalued, we might say, worshipped, adored, the firstborn, let alone all the sons she found greater value in this Gentile than she would have had in seven of her own sons. And so God was so faithful to Naomi, to Ruth, to Boaz, but he was up to something great, something marvelous, something even bigger than, again, food and marriage and babies. Notice what we read there in verse 17. A son has been born to Naomi. Isn't that interesting? It's Ruth's son, but it's Naomi's son because she's perpetuating this, Uh, family line of Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Then what do we read? The father of David. David, loved ones. That's what God is up to here. Don't forget Judges 21-25, the last verse of Judges. What does it say again? In those days there was what? No No king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The next book in our Bible. It's Ruth. What what is it there for? To bring us to David. The story began with no king. It ends with this foreshadowing of King David. But it all seems so anticlimactic because it tells us about this man Perez. And uh, he was the son of Judah uh, and Judah's daughter-in-law Tamar who dressed like a prostitute to entice Judah. Judah's the tribe from which the kingship was to be given to Israel according to Jacob in Genesis chapter 49. And the genealogy goes down through Boaz, David's great-grandfather. He was the ultimate purpose of Ruth turning to the Lord, turning to the Lord, be, being converted to him. David was the means, though, to an end. Because in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy continues, and the genealogy goes through all these names here that are listed, Obed, Jesse, David, all the way down to the Messiah our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate purpose of this Gentile woman. God sent a famine. God did all these things. Why? To bring this Gentile woman into his kingdom to become one of the great, great, great grandmothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great king. What kind of a king is Jesus? What kind of a king is he? He's an eternal king. Unlike David, death could not hold this eternal king down. He's a gracious king. We see here that he saves those who have run the farthest away from his kingdom and those who live in the depths of depravity. He's an infinite king. His grace is without measure. His love has no end. He's a merciful king. He brings us into his kingdom. He brings outcasts like Ruth and the destitute like us into his kingdom. And he's the promised king. All these ancient prophecies of the Old Testament tell us the very ethnic group that, from which this king was going to be uh, born, the particular tribe from which he was to come, the town in which he was to be born, the time in which he was to be born. Was that all coincidence? Did it all just happen? No. The Lord has fulfilled his promises. He sent us a king, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that king invites you and me into his kingdom. He invites the strangers, the outcasts, the Gentiles, the sinner. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.